0: You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek.
1: Hello, please let me see your ticket stubs for the Double Edge Double Bill. This week, it's Willem Dafoe and the Boondock Saints of Florida. Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 or seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. I am Adam Thomas, and it's ammonia!
0: And I'm Thomas Mariani, and I'm just glad we're doing our intro here, because then there was a firefight! I knew it. I knew one of us was going to do it. Yep, it had to be done. It had to 100% be done. (laughs) But yes, welcome everybody to uh, the double-edged double bill, where every week Adam and I uh, cover a good and a bad feature based around a general topic uh, that we decide on. And uh, this week, in honor of the card counter is coming out uh, from Paul Schrader, we are dedicating an episode to Mister Willem Dafoe, who is one of our favorite actors obviously working right now one of the best american actors i'm curious adam when was the first time you remember kind of noticing defoe and really like clinging on to him as an actor Oh, that's a really damn good question
1: um i know it wasn't but it was right around clear and present danger it was and i know. obviously it's something people talk about all the time but it's his fucking like laugh lines on his face. I noticed it. I'm like, this guy is kind of unconventional looking. Like I said, I don't think that was the first, but that's the first one that popped in the head. It might have been the second time I seen him in something. So I was like, oh, this guy's that guy. Um, I, that's probably it.
0: I mean, for me, since I'm a bit younger, it was most definitely Spider-Man. Like, the him as Green Goblin was immediately just, like, the, the, as a 10-year-old, he was just, like, one of those examples where that suit gets a lot of shit, obviously, because it's, like, oh, it's Power rangers or whatever, but him just seeing his face anytime, especially when he goes, like, full manic hide to uh, Norman Osborn's Jekyll, um, he just, like, fully goes into a creepy mode that I'm just, like, as a kid, I was just like, this man is scary, I don't know. And weirdly, like, right after that, I would have heard his voice in Finding Nemo where he plays a much more likable, but still dark and damaged character. (laughs) Yes, for sure. I remember when I saw him in that, and then I would see him in some of the other things he would do. I I think what's so fascinating about Defoe is just the fact that he is such a constant working actor, and he rarely feels like he's doing things for a paycheck. He was, like, theatrically trained, and he, like, really sort of loves the craft of acting to the point where he really just perfectly puts himself into any role and even in like movies where he's not giving it a hundred percent he's at least never giving it below 50 i would say i even in like some really bad like straight-up studio movies he never feels like he is completely out of it he might half-ass it but even half-ass defoe is a full ass compared to others yeah
1: i can agree with that i've never seen willem defoe not give a shit about what he's doing there are certain movies of course that are terrible or Sometimes maybe he can't connect with the source material, so it, it feels like he may be a little bit distant. But he's also he's always trying. That's why he is, as you said in sort of the beginning, one of the consummate great American actors working today.
0: And I also just love seeing him in interviews where he can be like a very fun personality, but also you can tell that like he loves going to the craft. I, I would really recommend. Um, I believe it's Vanity Fair does these um, little. Uh, videos that are about like an actor going back through the various iconic roles in their career. The one on Defoe is like probably my favorite of those I've seen because he can is like even in some bullshit like one of the movies we're talking about t- today like there's always some kind of like interesting way he approaches it. He even, like, he talks about being in Spider-Man. He was just like, most people didn't want to do comic movies at that time. But I thought, like, no, this is fun. This is a bit different. This is interesting. He always likes to be kind of challenged. Even if that challenge is, how can I get something out of this terrible, straight-up fucking bullshit blockbuster movie or something? It's always, like, he approaches it with, like, a lot of intrigue and challenge, which I think is what separates him from a lot of other actors. He's always fun to watch. Even in our bad uh, sort of choice, I'd argue he's the only
1: good part of the movie like there's some problematic things to it but he's full in dude and uh he's sometimes he can just give out just such a electric over-the-top performance like in our bad choice or spider-man or a real muted performance like in our good choice or you know and a wide range in between i mean he can do comedy he's an artist with a full set of brushes and paint the guy can do anything
0: Yep, um, which is appropriate given his most recent Oscar nomination was for playing Vincent Van Gogh. (laughs) That's a really stellar connection there. But... Uh, You talked about that we did our choices. We might as well uh, introduce those. Uh, At the end of every episode, Adam and I pick a good and a bad choice. And so last week, we ended up picking our good pick, which was Adam's choice of The Florida Project, which we'll talk about first. And then we'll be talking about our bad choice, which was one of my two choices, but to be fair, our patrons over at patreon.com slash DEDBpod ended up voting on the Boondock Saints for a bad choice. Uh, So I agree. We definitely get the full range of Defoe from a more muted performance in The Florida Project, to a much more over-the-top silly one in the Boondock Saints, but we'll start on the calmer note. We'll ease into the Defoe, as it were, with the Florida Project. The man who lives in here gets arrested a lot. These are the rooms we're not supposed to go in. But let's go anyway!
1: Hey, Lee, we got a situation here. Open up. It's only the second week of the summer and there's already been a dead fish in the pool.
0: We're trying to get
1: Water blooms, strong, at tourist.
0: Woo! Bees! I failed as a mother, Moony. Yeah, Mom, <laughs> you're a disgrace. See, I took you on a safari. Whoa.
1: Let's go come on. Have
0: a nice day! Love you, Bobby! I love you, too! So, The Florida Project came out October 6, 2017, from director Sean Baker, um, who, this is not his first film, he's done a few others before this, including Tangerine, which I would fully recommend to anybody out there on Netflix right now. Great movie. Um, But he co-wrote this with uh, Chris... Bergoch. And um, what's so fascinating about that dude, is just that he has like a real naturalism to all of his movies that really works. And even also, fun fact, he co-created Greg the Bunny.
1: Oh, really? I didn't know that.
0: <laughs> yeah, but you can even see Greg the Bunny is on the TV at one point. In the movie, like, near the end of it, when the mother's watching TV, (laughs) it's Greg the Bunny. It's interesting, but I like the naturalism that Jude has in his movies. I think he's a really fascinating filmmaker, and this movie has a lot of uh, naturalism baked into it, where, if you don't remember this from a couple Oscar seasons ago, basically it's a slice-of-life movie that follows a young girl named Mooney, played by Brooklyn Prince, who um, lives at a... Motel in Kissimmee, Florida, which is a real place. It's just outside Disneyland. It's kind of the place where if you can't afford to go to a Disney hotel, you would go to one of the hotels or even motels that are in Kissimmee, which is about like a 30-minute drive out from the parks. Um, and uh, it follows, uh you know, Mooney along with her mother, Haley, played by uh, Bria Vignetti. I apologize to mispronounce mispronounced that. Uh, but it basically just follows like a slice of life as Mooney lives her life in this motel um, that's managed by... Bobby, as played by Willem Dafoe, and it's a lot of just like seeing this kid and the other kids that live at the motel there and the adjacent ones kind of interacting with each other and kind of trying to make the best out of their um, lesser sort of living situation, where they're living obviously in a motel in a little shitty part of Florida, uh, but they're trying to do the best with what they can, there's a lot of childhood wonder and sort of innocence there, but I'd seen this movie before. Obviously, uh, if you don't know, folks, I was born and raised in Tampa, Florida, which is a bit outside of Kissimmee, usually to drive over to the Disney parks. It's about a two-hour or so drive, and uh, Kissimmee is right along the highway. Um, I always see it every time I like go through Florida to get to the parks. But, Adam, you hadn't seen this one, and I'm very curious. As someone who I know you used to live in Florida... Um, for a certain period. Um, how did you feel about the Florida Project? Well, I
1: feel like the Florida Project is just Florida on screen. Bright colors, beautiful skies, hot weather, but just there's always this seedy sort of underbelly to Florida. There, it, it always feels like sort of the lunatics running the asylum down there. But with that being said, yeah, I hadn't seen this before. I remember you recommending it to me like pretty much right off the bat. Um, so I was always intrigued to see it. A, I love Willem Dafoe. B, I love A24 pictures. But it's just for some reason I never got around to it. That's why I sort of used this opportunity to, to make it one of my choices. And uh, I'm very, very happy that I did. It, it, it's, a, it's a beautiful movie. It inspires all the emotions. I could tell you that much. And uh, it is, without a doubt, a perfect choice for sort of the good pick for our topic actor, Willem Dafoe. He gives off such a sort of understated performance, but he feels 100% Floridian in this. Like, just this guy who's ended up running this motel right outside of fucking tourist central. And uh, just kind of his boss, he's got its do everything his boss tells him to do but he builds up this connections with all these random ass people and the good thing about it is what is so masterful sort of about his performance the way he interacts with every other person you know at the motel these other little side characters you see is different than he interacts with any of the other ones he definitely has sort of this built-in relationship with every single character and it's uh it's just a wonderful wonderful
0: performance yeah we i we should definitely go into defoe um a bit later but i'm curious how would you feel about uh sort of our main characters with like little mooney and uh the Haley, the mother character um especially i'm curious as a father how would you feel about this particular depiction of a certain living situation this was the reason why i was a bit nervous about having you watch this because there's a lot of not necessarily ch- children in peril as much but there's sort of a harrowing nature to watching this movie where it's a lot of just kind of kids being unsupervised in its own way how how'd you feel about watching that
1: uh it bummed me out man quite a bit like and i, I even said this to you in text and, it, and it, i have no reason really to feel this way but watching this movie even kind of made myself question some parenting decisions i've made like obviously i've never lived in a seedy motel or, or um you know prostituted myself or, or things like that
0: Um, Which we're not necessarily criticizing sex workers as much as maybe not doing it while your kid's there. You
1: wouldn't do that. No, 100%. You feel so bad for this kid, not only because of sort of the lifestyle her mother's chosen to sort of put her right in the middle of, but just even the way the kid acts with the cussing and the spitting and the yelling at other people and telling, you know, you're not the boss of me, fuck off, lady, and stuff like that. You're like, oh, this kid. You could just see it. Right away, this kid's going to have problems, man. And, you know, growing up and and really, once the real world sort of hits her, it, it's just, it's really sort of heart-wrenching. The performances are, are pretty good, especially for Haley. you know, it's her first movie. I mean, I mean, I know she's like a Lithuanian model, and she came over into this movie, and she's really, really good in it. I, she's not, it's not f- like a jaw-dropping performance by any means, at least in my opinion, but she's really strong as the lead it's pretty impressive
0: yeah i i do want to say that you said the word chose with uh the Haley character and sort of choosing to put um the mooney character no, you,
1: she chose to have her in the bathroom
0: oh right like yes that's true awesome. that, she definitely chose that much but what I, what i like about this movie is the fact that it doesn't necessarily depict i don't think the this poverty in a way that's necessarily like romanticizing it in a way that I think a lot of uh, sort of Oscar baby movies tend to do that kind of depict poverty. But at the same time, it's also not um, like really damning the Haley character in a fashion where it's just like, how dare you be this awful person to your daughter. There's a really complicated thing where she is genuinely, I think affectionate toward her daughter and the best scenes with like the two of them are when they're both just kind of like horse around with each other. The problem is, She's less of a mother to Haley and more of like a sister, which is yes. natural given like she's a younger mother. And I think that's the fascinating thing is the roles are so different than what they should be in terms of just like actually kind of disciplining, you know, the, the Mooney character and stuff like that, that it ends up like shifting the way that Mooney sees the world or is able to like communicate with people in a way that's, that's just this great mixture of like there are funny moments. I love Brooklyn Prince is so great in this movie at being such a naturalistic child, but just some of the great bits where, like, she's touring around, like, the new kids who have just moved in. Just, like, oh, this place is where uh, this guy who lives in here gets arrested a lot, and these are the rooms we're not supposed to go into. But let's go in anyway! <laughs> like, it's so cute, and it's so funny. But at the same time, you do, as an adult, obviously, see so, that, like, this kid is trying to, like, live... The best life she possibly can in the middle of the situation she has this great imagination wonder but at the same time she lacks a lot of supervision because her mother most likely grew up in a similar situation and thus it's this unfortunate thing where like these people are completely casted out and thrown out from you know especially in florida i know people like this that have lived unfortunately like, in these poverty-stricken places and it's not out of like malice that they don't aren't attentive to like their kids or whatever it's just because like they're unfortunately we're raised in a system that doesn't really give much opportunity for the poor to like have like better means to educate themselves and all this other stuff. So you end up with situations like this where people live in these motels and they don't have time to take care of their kids because they got to like work at whatever they can possibly do. And there's a real mixture of like tragedy, but also even a weird beauty that these characters kind of find in the middle of it.
1: Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree. Like like you said, maybe I am looking at it a little bit different because I'm I a parent and I do have a little ch- girl and she's a, roughly about the same age as the character in the movie. The most sort of heartwarming scenes in the movie, even though they were doing horrible vandalish shit, was the kids being kids. And just them finding joy even in the worst of circumstances. Like Not even not necessarily, yeah, I mean, the worst. Uh, it's not an ideal environment for children to sort of grow up in, but these kids made it you know, as fun as they possibly could. Granted, you know, arson is not necessarily a, a good thing to do, but it's just that was that was the moments that really sort of rang true for me that, you know, kids can just find a way to find the joy and happiness in, in, in no matter what the circumstance. And it it's done so well here to even with them all, they're begging for change. They get a single ice cream cone and they all share it. And that's the best part of their day. You know, the stuff like that. It, it's just, it's really sort of sweet. But at the same time, like I said, I, I ultimately felt depressed by the whole thing too. Because it's like, these kids are almost, not necessarily damned from the start, but it's going to be rough for them. And you, you hate to see it. I'm not saying that nobody can come back from living in a hotel or, or being, you know, sort of low income or however you want to describe it. But the chances are really really slim and especially even living in a place like a hotel and near a tourist town to where you know they're still paying a thousand dollars a fucking week to live there basically and it's like that's ridiculously expensive and it's just it's really sad dude And and I felt I felt for everybody in the movie not just the kids but yeah definitely the parents too where yeah they're young parents like her and her friend and everything but you know, you get the idea that maybe life hasn't been kind to them either, so they're, they're doing the best they can. And even the Willem Dafoe character, like, you get the idea that this might not be where he ultimately wanted to end up. But he's making the best out of the situation and the sort of the relationships he garners and grows. And To me, the, the takeaway from the movie is you do the best with the cards you're dealt. And that's sort of what we're seeing on the screen the whole time.
0: No, yeah, I definitely agree with that, and I think it it comes from a lot of, like, uh, some of these people, obviously, you mentioned, like, Brooklyn Prince was actually an actress, and Bria was a model from Lithuania who Sean Baker found, like, on Instagram, but a lot of the supporting cast isn't, like, Defoe or them, are actually people that lived in these hotels, particularly, like, Christopher Rivera, the little boy who plays Scooty like, lived in one of the adjacent hotels and was just this actual kid who feels, like, so authentic, and I think that's the thing is, there's a danger to where it's just like, oh, are you exploiting these people, and I don't think they are with this movie, because I think it's just kind of showing them as natural people with, like, the Scooty character, one of my favorites is uh, Josie Olivio as the Grandma Stacy who lives in the adjacent hotel. And it's taking care of like little Jancy and the the other little kid. I just love like the situation where they're the opening is um, the Mooney character and her friend spitting on her car, and she's like, "Hey, what the hell are you doing? You gotta clean this up." And so like the, the Haley character brings uh, Mooney back over, and they like clean the car, and the kids are making a game out of it, and she's just like, "Hey, we're this isn't supposed to be a game. You're not supposed to be doing this." And like the little Jancy kid joins in. I just love that like even that situation where it's just like, oh hey, we're being punished for doing something terrible, the kids are just trying to make some kind of joy that they can find out of that. And even the grandma kind of rolled into a certain point where like Haley's just like, ah, oh, come on, you need to just chill out, and you need to, like smoke a joint. And she's like, you know what? Maybe I do. Maybe that's exactly what I need. It's like girl, I feel you. That's a great moment where it's just like, even in the middle of this poverty situation, you can find connections with people. There's sort of is this weird kind of like community that builds up. And Defoe, I agree, has so many of those particular that lady who's outside on the fucking pool and the kids make fun of her for like being topless and bonafo is just like look i told you but you gotta like cover up so good like so many great moments that feel very natural or especially when those two later meet up and they like share a cigarette is like such a great beautiful moment yeah she's like see you didn't even say hi to me you're only talking to me because i got cigarettes i know it
1: and he's just sort of laughing and just you know chuckling with her and even the scene where uh you know like Haley brings in the rent money and he's counting it she's like why the fuck are you count you don't trust me and they go through the whole spiel where he's like all right i won't count it i'm gonna count it when you leave though and she's like, she's like come on what the fuck he's like look i got Will you just shut the fuck up and let me count it and they're just laughing with each other and stuff <laughs> like it's he's so good in this movie um and you know you sent me the gif of sort of the one part which is one of my favorite parts too where he walks out in the morning and he's just you know you could tell he's probably exhausted and there's the giant cranes right in the fucking driveway he's like okay boys we gotta go cars are coming here there's gotta be customers let's go gentlemen ah there we go and he's just walking them off the property
0: you're like yeah man i cannot emphasize enough as a florida boy born and raised those sandhill cranes pop up fucking everywhere and that i have lived a moment like that where just like they've been like on my fucking backyard or whatever just like come on get out of here and especially defoe brilliantly doing like ah, uh, come on you're not fish or fowl huh fish or fowl right. <laughs> so good but yeah even just some of the other stuff like the the place they get the ice cream at twisty treat had plenty of twisty treat even where i'm at like it's a great local chain that i've eaten ice cream at many times or like the various different tacky places in Kissimmee i have gone into even like the merlin shops or the big orange place stuff like that it's just like it perfectly captures the existence of living in florida which is like all these tacky looking fucking places but there's a weird kind of charm to seeing them like of course there it is like these familiar spots that have like a weird authenticity because they're they could only exist in Florida, quite frankly.
1: Right. And, that, and, and you know, one scene in the movie, too, that I want to sort of bring up emphasizes to me what the whole kind of the whole movie is. It's, you know, all the neighborhood kids are outside. They're all playing on the picnic tables. and They're all just having a good time. Willem Dafoe is out there painting this fucking gaudy-ass motel. And that old man comes up. Mm-hmm. It's just, you know, bright sunshine. Willem Dafoe doing his work, playing. And then this sort of seedy, dark thing is potentially going to happen. And Willem Dafoe sort of is a is sort of caught off guard by dropping the paint and all that stuff, um, which is another great scene where the guy's like, what the fuck? He's like, Hey buddy, I'm sorry. What do you want me to do? You know? But when he goes to the guy and he goes through that whole thing of going to get him the soda and going to do all the, and the way he sort of confronts him, it's a great scene, but it's so like unnerving. Because you know 100% what's happening the whole time. And you're sort of living vicariously through Defoe's character the whole time, too. Because obviously he knows what's going on, too. Uh, But just like I said, the fact that there's these beautiful kids outside just living their best life. Defoe's just trying to get through his day. And then something shitty is going to happen. And that's sort of how this whole movie goes in a way. Where you get these nice moments, like you said. Like her And, and Monet shopping at the dollar store and buying all this stuff and, you know, having a good time. And then the guy shows up, you know what I mean? It's just, it's doesn't, it's, it's just constantly showing sort of the decisions these people have made in their lives, sort of what it's leading to potentially around every corner. And it's, uh, it's, like I said, it's, it's a very somber look at not necessarily consequences of our actions, at the time, but where decisions we might've made early in our life where they might lead us to. And it's, uh, it's, it's like I said, it's very somber and it's very sad, but the whole thing is shot under this beautiful, And it, the, the movie looks fucking phenomenal. But it's so bright and colorful and beautiful looking, and yet there's always this air of dinginess to
0: them. Yeah, there's particularly the whole bit where Mooney and the kids go into the room they're not supposed to go into, and they end up turning off all the power, and Defoe comes back out. And there's this great, almost Wes Anderson shot of everybody outside coming out, and like, what the fuck happened to the power? And Defoe's like, all right, I'm going to fix it, I'm going to fix it. And he goes in, and he fixes it, and everyone's like, yeah, our hero, Willem Defoe." And there's a great, beautiful hero shot of, like, as the sun is setting, and Defoe's just like, oh, you're welcome. He's like, I love you, man. Love you, too. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's just like, hey, why don't you pay the bills? You're late, too, buddy. (laughs) Just great, perfect bit.
1: Yeah, your number's up, buddy. (laughs) Like, yeah. But then even that, though. So he does this. He's got this big hero shot. He's fucking basically walking off into the sunset. Really great. And then he walks in the office, and there's some fucking awful, like, drunk person in there bitching that she's not going to pay her weeks rent now because the power went out. Yes. Five fucking minutes. Like, I don't care. I'm not paying it. Blah, 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 blah. Like, you're like, God damn it! he can't have two minutes of just, hey, I did something.
0: Yeah, or even just, like, there's, even during the scene talk you talked about earlier, the pedophile scene, which I think is a great example of building tension in a very casual, normal way at the same time, is, like, so stellar, and even, I love that during that, when he's doing this, like, thing, it's just like, oh, yeah, this is a boss moment where he's telling this sick piece of shit what he what he's fucking needing to do like leading him off on this like I'm in the palm of his hands even then he has to keep looking back just like kids get off the fucking picnic table (laughs) while he's doing
1: (laughs) get off the goddamn table people eat there
0: (laughs) (laughs) where it's just like there's this great like once again like this beautiful moments of like really great human connection of even like a this back and forth that's going on or even I love this scene too where the kids are eating the ice cream inside of the lobby and he's looking straight at him And she's like, oh, it dripped. I told you, if it dripped, you got to get outside. Like, oh, come on, Bobby. No, you got to get out of here. Get out.
1: (laughs) Well, Well, obviously it's melting in here. (laughs) But I love to. But even that moment where the kids are playing hide and seek and they're tearing hell through the office. And he lets him get under the desk. He's like, okay, just watch the wires. And also the monitor, like, just jerks. He's like, I said watch the goddamn wires.
0: (laughs) And what's really interesting, too, is um, a lot of that you can tell is based on, there are a couple scenes where um, his son comes played by Caleb Landry Jones to, like, do some extra work. And you can tell from the second scene where um, Defoe is trying to say, like, he says, oh, hey, by the way, I told mom that like uh, you wished her happy birthday. You call her and you tell her I did not do such a thing. That, that's not a thing it's like you know what i don't need to come here you ruined my saturday i don't need this extra money here take the money back like he's clearly he's d- clearly divorced from his old, other wife and has lost all connection with his son so he's been trying to desperately cling on to that but also he finds some kind of like connection with these kids he still feels like he's this like kind of garden who's watching out for them a bit he still doesn't want to be full-on guarding because he's got other responsibilities but he cares about those kids truly
1: yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That was a great scene too. And by the way, I love Caleb Landry Jones. Another great upcoming character actor. that kid's talk about also having a very unconventional look to him. Yes, uh, makes it. Defoe's son, but yeah, great scene. You know, and he's like, "Look, it's an hour. I drive an hour and a half to get out here. I don't need this extra work. Like, I don't need it." And so you get the idea. He's telling him, "I come out here to see you. Like, I, I, I want to spend some time with you. Like, you know, blah blah blah." And Willem Defoe's like, "Okay, I understand. I understand." Well, at least help me get it off on the <laughs> bottom floor. Finish what you started. <laughs> like, Oh, fuck, man. <laughs> There's so many layers there already. And you're, oh, geez. <laughs> like, oh, fuck. Like the scenes where sort of the the Department of Child Services are at, you know, the hotel. door And they're all standing there. And he looks down the, the hallway and he can just see the two kids. And he goes up, and it's really well done. It shows the whole walk of him walking up to him. And then he crouches down so he's at their eye level. And you can still see the shit going on in the back, but now it's out of focus. And the way he's talking to them and stuff. You know, what's going on? Where are there people in my apartment? Ah, they just want to talk to your mom, and blah, 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 blah.
0: Like, it's really sweet. Yeah, there's a whole... It's like, oh, what's going on? It's like, oh, there's some kind of confusion. They're trying to work things up. But it's fine. It's going to... They're going to leave. And that's what makes it so so soul-crushing, the fucking finale of this movie, where, like, earlier on, there's a whole point where, like, the kids basically commit arson, which I even love how, like, they commit this arson, they're all safe, but then afterward, like, the, at these, like, old condos that are burning down, they basically end up accidentally burning it down. And all, like, the adults are like, oh, hey, look, the old apartments are burning down. Let's all look! <laughs> and they all just, like, go over and crowd around, and, like, Haley's taking Instagram photos of Mooney, as she looks like, oh, no, I don't want to be here. <laughs> but then... The whole thing with, um, shout out to uh, Ashley, who's a Mela murder, who's the friend of the Haley character, who, like, they're seen going out, like, clubbing and stuff, and they have, like, a friendship, and the kids are also friends, obviously, and she finds out about this through Scooty, and how all that dissolves with, like, their friendship, and especially, like, the culmination points that are so, like, just... Awkward, but in a way that really works, where, like, she goes over to her place of employment where she used to get free stuff from Ashley Mooney and the Haley character, and there's that weird tension of just, like, oh, man, you're being such an asshole to her, and I I get it because of, like, their severed connection. He actually doesn't want to admit anything at the same time she does want to incriminate mooney but also how mooney the whole time she's like hey mooney order anything you want okay i want to get pancakes and i want to get waffles and we get this it's such a there's so many mixed emotions in a scene like that and how it all ultimately culminates in the ending which i guess we'll we'll talk about a bit more but how did you feel that relationship especially worked in the movie
1: I, I thought i it was really well handled um i i get it you know they're they're friends through i'm assuming probably through desperation and you kind of get the feeling that maybe the friendship's a little bit more one sided as far as the free food. And it's alluded to that maybe she's paid her rent for her before and, and things like that. But, um, and trying to get her a job all the time and shit like that. But it was really, really sort of well done. And the fact of the matter is, that's how kids, and because they're kids, dude, they're, you got to figure, I placed them both in their early 20s, the two moms. If that, yeah. If that. And you got to, that's how quickly they can dissolve. You know, when you're that young, you're like, you like, dude, people stop talking over bullshit. Like it just happens. You get ghosted all the time. And you know, the fact of the matter is I understand where Haley was coming from. Cause she's like, what the fuck happened? Like, I don't know. But then I also understand on the, on the other aspect where she's like, I don't want my kid hanging around with this other kid because look at the shit they do. Like, it's going to be bad. Like I'll lose my kid. Like I understand. She, uh, she beat the shit out of her, by the way. Yes. So violent. And the fact that it's showing the back of the Scooty kid's head, he's watching this happen, was gut-wrenching for me. Like, I'm like, oh, no.
0: The movie, I I really like how it doesn't show some of these more, either, like, that stuff or, like, some of the more lascivious things because it's from the kid's perspective like that, that it's locked out of frame. Or even when, like, Mooney is inside the the bathroom in in the bath while the John is over with uh, Haley and you just hear him coming. like, oh shit, I just had to go to the bathroom. There's a kid in here. It's like, why did I tell you, do the bathrooms off limits and all that shit. It, it's this great way of like showcasing like, oh, this is such a sad situation without being once again exploitive. Yes, I, I completely agree. And because uh, it very well could have gone very exploitive, but
1: it didn't. It's, uh, it's really, really well handled. But then even the idea that you get about 10 minutes to 15 minutes before you get the reveal of the, sort of the John walking in the bathroom, you get 10 to 15 minutes of her sitting there in the tub, you know, occasionally for a couple minutes at a time. And I mean, I kind of placed together what was going on, but then once it confirms it, you're like, Oh no,
0: like, it's really like,
1: Oh, this poor kid. Good God. But you know, to kind of get to the end a little bit.
0: Yes. Near- Cause this was the most controversial thing about the movie when it came out, this split a lot of people in terms of like the very ending. I'm curious where you lie on this. I loved and It broke my heart. Her crying at the door. Yes, I mean, just
1: heart-wrenching. Now, I'm of two minds. Either one, that actually happened, that they somehow got into Disney World and ran away. But I think that was more, maybe I'm wrong, but that was like sort of a fantasy. That that's kind of what they both, at the time, wished they could do, just run away and go live in Disney World.
0: I mean, I'm more of the mind that it's definitely a fantasy because... As somebody who's been to Disney World a solid amount of times, like there's a whole situation where like you need like to get the ticket and shit like that before you can ever go in. There's like a lot of checkpoints or whatever. It's definitely I think a fancy thing, but the bigger thing was I think it wasn't so much about like oh is it real or fancy? but if that was a good decision to have like that final moment or not. Do you think that worked where they actually go into Disney World and it was filmed guerrilla style, actually like on an iPhone and shit like that? Do you think that worked as a finale for the movie?
1: Yeah, because on the flip side, what do you want to see? Do you want to see her get driven off in a car, you know, crying and then her mom not knowing where she is and her having to say goodbye to all these people? Like, to me, that'd be too much of a downer note. Like, why not end it on a, you know, a childlike whimsy fantasy? That's what the whole movie's been already. So why not end it on that? I, I thought it was a really smart way to end
0: it. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that moment crystallizes so much of like it like you mentioned mooney has been living in her own fantasy world throughout all of this she's like oh let's go on a safari and they find like the broken down tree or whatever all this other stuff she's been building a fantasy world that we haven't seen literally but if you listen to like her talking about it like she's trying to make the best of the situation and when it gets to this critical point of just like oh I'm going to be ripped away from the only home I've ever known and my mother and my friends and this is devastating to me like her finally realizing and I agree like that crying is like so it's devastating you're a monster if you feel nothing at that poor fucking kid crying. Um, then leading off into the completely different um, note, the way it looks is different. There's actually like a score that's going on when there hadn't really been that much diegetic music, except for at the very opening, you hear Kool the gang's Celebration, which interestingly, the music, the score is an orchestrated version of that song Mm -hmm. which is so great i love i love how they they did that but at the same time it's like it's this building point where like mooney can't escape in like this traditional way because this world's being ripped away from her so she has to retreat even further into fantasy to a place that like she hasn't really been before they they say that a lot of like disney has like sort of been this outside thing you don't you always like disney is a specter that haunts over Kissimmee. So much where it's just like, oh, look, there's all these stores that say, like, Disney World uh, merchandise inside or all this other stuff. Like, it's this place that, like, brings work and is, like, the big economic drive of this town. But it's constantly just this thing of, like, well, we can never go there. We can't work there. They're not going to hire any of us. And so the only glimpses we give Disney are stuff like the the heartbreaking but also kind of beautiful moment of, like, hey, let's everybody go for Jancy's birthday. Let's have a little um, hostess cake while we watch the fireworks from just outside the property and like Disney has been this constant like outside thing they can't get to so they culminating in they go to Disney in their minds and they go to the magic cast and they see all this other stuff that one moment that's like gorilla style shot says so much more about like that relationship between like the class and um like childlike innocence and wonder and what Disney as a corporation wants to feed you way more than that fucking escape from tomorrow movie ever did. Which, if you don't know, was this like indie movie that was infamous for like, oh, we shot at Disney Land and World Gorilla style, um, and it's a piece of fucking shit that we might talk about in the show at some point because it's one of the biggest disappointments of my film-going life in the last like ten years. Terrible fucking movie. As opposed to this movie does says all of that without any of like the pretentious bullshit of that movie in just one shot.
1: Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with you. On um, yes, that is a dog shit movie. In a way, I get where people would be sort of like. Put off by the ending, but again, how else do you want this to end? Do you want it to end on such a down note, or do you want it to end on just, you know, obviously we know what's happening, we know she is getting taken away, we know all this stuff, but why not end it in just this sort of sweet way where these kids escape and they get to go live their lives at the magic castle? Like, that's that's uh, it's beautiful,
0: yes, in this bittersweet way, I would say. I think it's like it's a beautiful childlike representation of trying to get away from your problems in a very tragic way but but adam we've been talking a while about the florida project and we have a lot we're gonna have to say about our other movie so let's do quick final thoughts on the florida project
1: um i loved it it bummed me out it made me happy it made me sad it, it gave me all the feelings that you could possibly have while watching a movie uh for the most part it, it was just it's a masterful woman to foe like i completely understand why he got nominated for it um it's it's breathtaking to look at the sort of color palette that's used is perfectly represents Florida a really sweet but harrowing little movie that deserves a little bit more attention than it necessarily got like it got enough obviously he was nominated but there's definitely one of those that I think people unfairly didn't maybe watch and And to be honest, I'm definitely one of those people and I'm really glad I did.
0: Yeah, I mean, I second all that. And I will also say just as a Florida boy, I can safely say that um, not just this particular movie, but A24, who released this movie, has done the best job I've ever seen with depicting Florida for all of its like warts, but also occasional beauties where like we talked about Moonlight on the show which was, I think, another great side of Florida that they depicted, or Spring Breakers, which is a completely other, different side, or even recently Zola, which is a movie I really loved. All of their movies feel so much like my friend Michael, who was my roommate in college, said it so beautifully that watching this movie is just like a VR experience of Kissimmee, Florida. It is that exact place, and it's not romanticized, but it's also not um, totally like down-crying-it-as-a-piece-of-shit place. It is just that place. You are there immediately and if it had smell of vision you would smell it and I don't recommend it <laughs> at the same time but uh, yeah, I love this movie phenomenal work can't wait to see what else Sean Baker does in the future but like I said we got a whole other movie to talk about though first here's a promo for an ESO show you can queue up right after ours Star Trek is a vision great storytelling my favorite TV show of all time I really love it and it's so much fun Join our crew aboard Earth Station Trek for your regular podcast escape into the Trekverse.
1: Make it so. Let's see what's out there. Wait a minute,
0: wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought we all agreed to say make it so.
1: No, let's go, it's fun.
0: But make it so is iconic, it's classic.
1: It's too iconic. So we're all gonna do make it so? No.
0: (laughs) All right, so let's get into our bad feature, the Boondock Saints the streets of boston this was no gangland assassination
1: it was way too sloppy something went wrong here
0: an fbi agent
1: is on a case all the low lives in the quiet city of boston start dropping dead and you think it's unrelated the victims are the mob and the hitmen think they're on a mission
0: from god In a place where the violent have the power. Destroy all that which is evil, so that which is good may flourish. One lawman doesn't know whether to catch the killers. I believe what they do is necessary. Or
1: join them. All the things I wish I could do, these guys are doing. With every breath, we shall hunt them down. Each day, we will spill their blood. There was a firefight!
0: The Boondock Saints. So... The Boondock Saints came out uh, January 21st, 2000, though it had a couple festival screenings in 1999, from auteur, director, writer, Troy Duffy, who, um, this movie's story is so fascinating, I don't think we're going to get into as much of, like, the elaborate details, but briefly, as much as I can, um, first I would recommend watching the uh, documentary Overnight, which is all about the production of this movie and is so fascinating. It's just like a capsule of just like Troy Duffy as a person, which is to say a blithering fucking idiot who I'm so surprised was able to get a fucking movie made where he was this guy who lived in Boston and was a bartender and a bouncer who had never written a screenplay before yet churned out this screenplay for the Boondock Saints, which is this like crime vigilante movie that's very much aping off of Quentin Tarantino, and, like, through some sheer force of will, he managed to get it in the hands of several people, including Harvey Weinstein, uh, one of, you know, those guys, who calms up, and we hate talking about him, fuck that guy, but just to show you his taste, he thought this was a good script, and he decided, you know what, I am going to bankroll this movie, it's going to cost $15 million, you're going to have, like, full creative control, your band, your shitty band, is going to do the fucking soundtrack for this we're gonna make sure after this as an incentive i will buy half of your bar that you work at so that you can end up owning the place and basically run it yourself and he had the whole card on his table and a lot of that fell through that overnight documentary does a really great job of depicting it but basically all of that was for this movie which got a cult following wasn't very successful in its limited theatrical release literally was released in five theaters Cause there's some concerns over Columbine, given how violent it is and stuff. And, uh, this is a movie I'd heard about for a while when I was younger and had a cult following behind it because of, he'd made like $50 million in DVD sales. And it was a pretty sizable cult hit to where a sequel came out about 10 years later. And around the time of that sequel, I was like, Oh, you know what? I guess I'll watch this Boondock Saints movie. People say it's cool. And even then as a dumb high schooler, I thought this movie was fucking stupid not nearly as stupid as I think it is now, upon revisiting it for the record. Uh, I just thought it was bad. But, Adam, I know uh-huh. that um, despite me being as a bad choice, when you saw this, apparently uh, around the time it was on DVD, you were a pretty big fan. I don't think pretty big fan is
1: enough to sort of encapsulate how I felt. I, I loved this movie. You know, like as, I was definitely sort of championing the fact that I was an Irish kid a lot by the time this movie came out, so it was like... Yeah, a movie about, you know, Irish kids and, you know, blah, blah. it's really cool. It's slick. they're killers and yet there's still Catholicism stuff in it and blah, 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 blah. I thought it was the coolest fucking thing I've ever seen. Um, you know, I didn't go crazy like Hot Topic by all the shit that they put out for it because that was a huge thing. But I mean, I was even contemplating getting a tattoo for, for the movie and stuff like that. Like, I really, really loved this movie. Um, I always knew it was piss poorly acted other than Willem Dafoe. Uh, but for some reason it just never really bothered me. I, I just thought there was something unique about it. And I don't, I don't know what it was. Uh, you know, I, now I do, uh, I hadn't watched a lot of other good movies. <laughs> um, I was, I, my back in the day, my bag was action movies and sci-fi movies. Like it wasn't, I didn't really go deviate too far from that. You know, obviously horror as well, but I, I never really watch a lot of vigilante type films or things like that. It just wasn't necessarily my thing other than like the, you know, the main ones like Rambo and stuff like that. But um, so this was like, it, it in a weird way. I, I hate to sound I, for lack of a better term. It spoke to me. What it was saying was nothing good for sure. So when you had put this up sort of for the bad choice, I was a little bit worried about it. Like, I mean, obviously the patrons voted it, but you gave it sort of the option. I was a little bit worried. I'm like, Oh fuck. That movie meant so much to me. Is it not good anymore? Like, I know there's problematic stuff in it, especially as far as like homophobia and things like that. You know, I was nervous and I can honestly say, you know, after rewatching it, uh, I mean, this movie is, it's fucking awful. (laughs) Is awful in so many ways. Uh, not just the acting, the way it's shot, the way it's edited, the music, the fucking horrible, like, phony accents. The the plot is ridiculous. It's just, it's a mean, mean-spirited movie written by a mean-spirited fucking jerk-off. And uh, it's right there on the screen. Like, you know, obviously when, when this came out, I probably was filled with a lot of, like, sort of angst and rage and anger. And, and I think that's why maybe it... It sort of endeared itself to me. I'm not that guy anymore, obviously. I'm not a fucking moron anymore either. Not to say that people who are fans of this movie are morons. I don't want to say that. But I it just it's not... I'm completely different than what I was when I first saw this. And I can't relate to this movie
0: basically at all anymore. Adam, I say this with all the love of my heart. That the fact that you were a fan of the Boondock Saints as a kid is the least surprising thing you've ever said to me. <laughs>
1: because yeah i get that
0: because just like knowing adam and like hearing especially like the stories i've heard of his childhood just like that that tracks that 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 tracks back and forth but at the same time i mean i get where especially at the time why this would have been sort of appealing to especially kind of the cult audience because like i mentioned it didn't do at all well on five screens in theaters because around this time was obviously columbine and that was a big controversy sort of around this point with violent movies just like oh is this influencing kids and i don't think like this movie is powerful enough to inspire someone to be obviously like a columbine killer necessarily but i think it's clearly responsible enough for giving a kid a bad taste in like culture and cinema and anything else and also just some of the other things in this because uh this is it's i agree it's a very mean-spirited movie made by a mean-spirited person um but it's Unfortunately, like it is slick enough to where it could trick somebody like you mentioned who hasn't seen a lot of movies, especially at this time when it was this movie that like was caught off the tails of like the Tarantino rip-off phase. And this was definitely one of the more successful ones in terms of like, "Oh my god, this is like The Hidden Gem that no one talked about." This wasn't like um the Things to Do When You're Dead in Denver or whatever the fuck, where it's just like a movie that came in theaters in several screens and then just completely failed and no one really talks about it again as opposed to this movie is one that like it's a cult gem that people discover and like oh my god it's so great because it's so different from everything else and it's like yeah it's different from everything else because a good filmmaker wouldn't make this terrible fucking piece of shit movie <laughs> no
1: you're 100 percent right and the thing is you know as like i said as i matured and sort of got really more into film and stuff you know you come to the conclusion not just with film but i, I guess sort of in life in general once you become a little bit less self-centered as you get older that just because something's different doesn't mean it's good doesn't mean it's bad but it doesn't mean it's fucking good either and this is a prime example of that there's a reason there's no other movies like the boondock saints including this fucking sequel there's a reason why
0: because it's not good yeah um and even then the sequel so it's not it's not this movie bill so it's bad for very different reasons but uh we might talk about that a bit but we had to focus on this particular movie which as you mentioned honestly it's an incomprehensible plot it doesn't make much of any sense where it's about these two brothers played by sean patrick flannery and norman Reedus, who are the mcmanus brothers twins fraternal twins who are typical like boston night assholes that like get drunk and beat up that one lady from glee dot marie jones at the beginning at their meat packing plant job they still have after that for some reason um but after that they go off to the pub and they end up getting in conflict with some russian mobsters that are trying to dismantle the establishment of one doc mcginsey played by gerard parks aka the old man doc from fucking fraggle rock who has tourettes in this movie because that's that's yeah. funny right isn't that funny guys oh don't worry if you don't think that's funny there's going to be a bunch of other dukes very similarly tasteless that'll like really appeal to you it's great sarcasm sarcasm bad but <laughs> with from there like the guys end up like murdering these russian gangsters basically in this style that i can't emphasize enough how much i fucking hate troy Duffy's style of like oh hey we're gonna have the conflict build up to a certain point and then we're gonna cut and we're going to see, like, the aftermath, and then we're going to show you exactly what happened, which is fine to do, like, once. But he does it every time, and it's so fucking annoying. Like, why? Why are we doing it this way? Just because it's slightly different? Doesn't matter. It's fucking dumb, Troy. I think the only time that it actually does work
1: is with the whole, it was a firefight scene. I'd, I'd argue that's the time it works the best.
0: Yes, because we should get to our man, Mr. Defoe, plays uh, this detective um Paul Smecker, great, great name. Great name everybody has. Um, Mr. Smecker is this detective who is investigating and is basically a ripoff of, like, the Gary Oldman character from The Professional. But now he's a detective who's got, like, weird proclivities.
1: He's an FBI agent, to be fair. Right, that's true. of the, fil- the his character, where the local Boston PD detectives don't like working with him at first because he's FBI.
0: Right. Yes, but he keeps investigating, and he literally does like all the things like Oldman would do. Like, oh, I'm going to put on my headphones and listen to opera as i investigate and immediately just like oh yeah here it is this is exactly the problem here's what happened here's everything i know i'm a genius and then he the way that defoe delivers this terrible dialogue it's once again a great example of him giving so much to this movie and apparently like troy duffy convinced him after like he saw defoe perform in a theater, like some one of his like avant garde weird theater pieces, he was doing. And Troy Duffy was so excited about, like, oh my god, I love you so much. I hope you could do the movie with me. I really appreciate it. And he's just like, you know, he has absolutely no experience. But I like the gumption on this kid. I'll do it. <laughs> and that's the whole attitude throughout this whole movie. It's just like, he knows this is a first time filmmaker making a dumb, stupid action movie that, like, I'm sure no one's gonna fucking see. So I'm just gonna go hammy as possible. And goddamn if he doesn't, because he'll do stuff like, oh, he enters the FBI office and he's just like, oh, we don't have much on these two, but apparently all we know is the angels. And he literally does the fucking arm flap.
1: Yep actually if you don't mind can we just stay here oh yeah we got a holy cell i mean I...
0: it's okay with me if you friends stay over <laughs> <laughs> like you mentioned he is easily the best part of this movie just anytime he's on screen immediately just like oh i perk up because he's gonna do something stupid that's really fun to watch
1: wacky and wild like to the point where like i said, you know the classic you know there was a firefight scene where he's investigating this crime scene and then he just pulls his gun out and starts shooting it in the air and he's covered in sweat he looks like he had, suddenly looks like he hasn't slept in days Ooh, that would not happen <laughs> like no fbi he'd instantly get arrested before has gone out just discharging it in the air
0: and also the big thing that you're not mentioning is that while he's investigating he's going through the every single bit and piece of this crime scene but he's actually in the middle of the crime scene which they do a couple other times and it's dumb i would agree i think this is the one time where I will give Troy Duffy credit where this feels the most, like, stylistically interesting. To see DeFoe casually walking throughout, like, this thing that's playing out. Like, he's this sort of Ghost of Christmas Past specter, basically, that's going around. Which leads to that then there was a firefight thing, which not only does he do the thing where he shoots his gun in the air, but right before that, he is, like, moving his hands to the opera as the guns are going off in the fucking flashback. And it's so fucking extra. (laughs) It's great though. And like I you know,
1: my opening line from the show, you know, Sir, we can't go to your sample. It's fucking ammonia. This whole crime scene's contaminated. God damn it. Fuck. Fuck. He falls into the bushes and shit. Like you see he's insane, dude. His choices are so fascinating to me and so hammy and over the top that it's just like I, I the time this time watching, I was literally like just counting them the minutes until Liam Defoe came back on screen
0: yeah particularly even like the small subtle things he does like there's the bit where they're investigating like the peep show and he's just like in the middle of the peep show just like "Mm -mm, let me investigate here let me see i think this might have happened you know and he's like at one point sitting down he's playing around with like a little shawl that one of the fucking strippers would have been wearing Yep.
1: yep he's investigating the dude that they shot in the back of the head, the first one. And he's got his fingers in the bullet holes and he takes out and he starts rubbing it through his hair and stuff to get the hair out of his eyes. And all the other detectives are looking at him like, Oh God. And he keeps doing it. Like, it's just so funny. He, just the weird choices he makes, it's just, it's perfect. You know, there, there is sort of the homophobic language Mm -hmm. that comes ultimately he's revealed to be, uh, he's homosexual. So he, he uses the F word, I think twice. Yeah, as, far as I know, um, but I will say, out of all the other times it's used in the movie, because it is used a lot, his are the least offensive to me because it fits with the character already. That character is so crazy and out of control
0: where it kind of didn't bother me. Um, I mean, I think it bothered me just in terms of like, it doesn't, because this character that you're mentioning, like he's over the top, but at the same time, there's no consistency to him as a character. <laughs> so where I think that would like make sense to me. I think what bothers me less, especially I was worried going into this, is there's a certain point later on where, he goes in to investigate the the crime scene that, like, the big climax is going to happen at, and he decides to get in wearing a disguise, and that disguise is he pretends to be, like, a prostitute that's going to come in, and he's in full-on, like, drag regalia. And I was worried, like, oh, is it going to be maybe a bit transphobic or whatever? And, I mean, there's just, like, general misogyny from the other people, but more importantly, Defoe isn't playing it in the way of, like, oh, this is offensive. He's playing it like he's fucking Bugs Bunny. <laughs>
1: <Yes>. <laughs> and
0: he's just going for it.
1: When he pulls that gun out of his purse and shoots it, whatever he did with his mouth to make his cheeks, like, flutter, when he shot, like, he literally did, like, a raspberry when he shot the gun. It's perfect. It's so over the top and crazy. Like, what is happening here? Like, I don't understand this. (laughs) It's just, and yet, you could tell it's almost like they just let Willem Dafoe kind of do whatever he wanted to do, and it worked perfect.
0: And more importantly, like the, the the big thing that I'm sure Defoe is like is just reading this terrible scriptboard, this character at a certain point is like he's so infatuated with the McManus brothers and their crimes because he's just like at a confession at one point he's like, I don't you normally do confession, but I have to tell you, Doctor, I'm so fascinated by what these men do because I don't think that it's the right thing, but at the same time, I think what they're doing might be actually the right thing. I don't know, I'm so conflicted. Like he read this, he's like, the only way I can convincingly depict any of this is to make this guy an insane loony person.
1: <laughs> right, Edward. I'm delivering this horrible speech to this music professional. I gotta be piss drunk.
0: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and if you have not seen this movie and you're kind of like, "Oh, this sounds fascinating, kind of fun," we want to really emphasize: we're dwelling on Defoe so much because there are gulfs without him, and those gulfs are so miserable. Because these two main characters... I don't mind... I think Sean Patrick Flannery and Norman Reedus are fine as actors, usually. This is them at their... Like, as leads, they do not work whatsoever. They are so dull, and there's so much just like these asshole Irish guys who are just like, oh, it's kind of like we're gonna mention a bunch of people like John Wayne and uh, Charles Bronson. There's like all these people that were such heroes to us. And they have like a cavalcade of f- fucking assholes who just follow around, like, particularly David Delarocco. As the funny man who's like their Italian buddy who keeps coming around and keeps delivering jokes, particularly during one sequence where he's talking to his Italian mob boss guy and Ron Jeremy, also another piece of shit who I hate seeing in fucking movies for various reasons. And they go back and forth on this thing that, like, I've said this before, I'm an Italian guy. I'm not that bothered usually by Italian stereotype shit, but. When you literally have your fucking Italian mob boss guy eating lunch during this, and he pulls out an entire fucking loaf of Italian bread. Guys, yep. come filled on. Filled with salami. Yeah, filled with salami and all this other shit. Like, guys, I there's only so much I can take. I'm not going to call the Italian Defamation League, but also fuck you. <laughs> it's such a bad accent, too. Yep. It's so bad.
1: Uh, you're
0: like okay oh. and, and, and especially the dialogue you're delivering also has um a lot of uses of the n-word um in a way that is once again just like trying to provoke and shock there's so much of just like that late 90s kind of spirit just like oh no you know what we're gonna like really shake things up by like these are awful characters who are going to be saying this shit but guess what isn't it entertaining isn't it kind of fun they're saying all this this naughty shit no it's not because at the same time you're saying, oh, they're awful characters, you're also completely championing them and their violence in a way that's just like, it's it's morally irresponsible and also bad. You could be a morally reprehensible but well-made movie, and this is, doesn't have the courtesy to do that.
1: The best way to describe this movie, it is really pure toxic masculinity. Mm-hmm. Like, that's what this movie is. And to the point where even the sequel... They have a whole speech about what it is to really be a man,
0: and it's really disgusting. Yeah, it, 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 that's the thing. Is like that's a term that we throw on a lot. A lot of people throw on a lot, and sometimes that term can get like kind of muddled or whatever. But this is like such a pure example of it that this movie should just be like in a fucking toxic waste barrel that says caution, toxic masculinity, just, like, it is that embodied. Like, if you fucking put your hand in, it would burn away and put in, like, an axe body spray can instead of your hand.
1: Right. I mean, to the point to where you brought up the, the Dot Marie Jones part where, you know, he says, you know, basic rule, which, by the way, the, the Irish is basic rule of thumb. Like, no, 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 that's not accurate, but basic rule of thumb. It's she's like, rule of thumb, you know, men used to be allowed to beat their wives as long as they used something that was no wider than their thumb and he's like well how much damage is that going to do should it be called rule of wrist and she's like fuck you you know and and then the the reaction is oh relax just a joke it's saint patrick's day
0: like wait a minute and then she punches him and then only so that they can have the excuse to like punch her basically yep a hundred
1: percent a hundred percent it's morally wrong it's morally reprehensible to the point to where you know, I don't feel bad that I liked this movie, but I feel bad for kids who are even younger than me, 13, 14 years old, watching this movie and be like, oh, these are the coolest guys. It's like, dude, this movie is it's just a pure example of what dude bros thinks is cool.
0: Yep, its it's the favorite movie of your least favorite guy you meet at a bar at St. Patrick's Day. A thousand just some asshole, you know.
1: It's like, dude, best movie ever, Boondock Saints, kid. I fucking love it, dude. When the stripper was naked and he grabbed a body, fucking awesome, right? Like, oh, no, this movie sucks. Yep, (laughs) It's about as bad as Norman Reedus' Irish accent.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, especially when you have the audacity to include a real Irish guy like a Billy Connolly. Who pops what? in and who I love Billy Connolly. I think he's a very fun comedian. Um, and this is him playing against type of being like a badass character, and he comes in with his authentic Irish brogans, fucking talking to these dumb n- 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 numbskull idiots. But at the same time, I just want to say that um I loathe that character of El Duce. This guy who's just like, oh, he's the best ass guy possible. It's like, oh, what's badass about him? He has a fucking vest that can hold six holsters of guns. Yeah. That's what's badass about him. He has a fucking vest. Great. That's
1: awesome. <laughs> yeah. No, I agree.
0: It's like if you if you fucking George Lucas pelted out Han Solo, just like, look, it's Han Solo. What's, he's the coolest guy ever. What's so cool about him? He's got a vest on. <laughs> like, who cares about his fucking vest? <laughs> who gives a shit? You know, and just
1: the, you know, it's our, it's our family prayer passed on from our grandfather to us. And of course, this El Duce guy just magically turns out to be their father. Like, it's just so... the after credits or during the credits sort of interviews
0: well no no no, no, no. hold on hold on you're skipping over a crucial element of this which is after that happens like el duche and the two brothers literally like invade this courtroom where they're trying to try this like uh this fucking mob boss that's been throughout the movie and they fucking come in and they literally like hold up the place and execute this guy in front of an entire courtroom of people that's the finale of our movie. That's what our heroes do is like the big culminating point. And then over the credits, there are these testimonials you're talking about, which just people are divided about like, oh, I don't know. I don't like the boondock saints. They, they might not be the best guys or other people. are like, you know what? They're great. They're, they're doing the thing that police won't dare to do. And then the other people in the middle who are just like, no comment, no comment. Why? Why are they included if they don't have a comment?
1: I have no idea. And then and then it's also some of the worst acting ever, even in now scenes. It's like, yeah, I would like the Budak says, those two guys playing basketball. What? How could you say that? I can't believe you right now. Like, oh, God, why are we putting emphasis on this shit? Like, I, <sighs> yeah, kids are going to have pictures of Batman, Superman, and the Saints on their wall. Really? Okay. Yeah. Um hot take, this movie fucking sucks, (laughs) dude. (laughs) It's you know, the thing is there could be a cool movie here. There really could be. I don't even mind the vigilanteism stuff. I don't even mind the Irish Catholicism angle to it. I don't mind it. It's just it's done by like a dude who's in college just got done slamming beers with his buddies and he wrote this script. So much money was thrown at Troy Duffy for this. And, you know, again, I don't like the guy, but I got to give him credit for negotiating to have the fact that he had pure creative control and was able to direct it. Doesn't make it good, but it's 100 percent his. So win or fail, he is to blame for this.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's totally his project. And I get why if you want, which have you seen the overnight documentary? no
1: is that available somewhere because i
0: want to it is currently streaming on tubi as of when we're recording this it might not by the time this is released folks but it was it was streaming that's where i watched it earlier today um it is just a personal look at like him going around and like because these documentarians were just like hired by him to be like hey this is dvd bonus content you keep filming me just keep filming me doing this whole process like if him like talking with his parents um, about how much he loves that he's going to be in the movie all the way through to like all the stuff with Harvey Weinstein and all this other stuff. It is a fascinating look at a kid who like, at this point he's like 26 and this is his first script and he's got in front of fucking Harvey Weinstein's face and got people into like fascinated by it. And so like, he's the hometown hero boy and how all that crashes down even before they start filming the movie. Um, Like, like I said, there's a lot to that documentary. I would fully recommend it much more than I would say the sequel Um, which, well, I think we can briefly address, despite how terrible this movie is, is worse, mainly because Defoe has a brief cameo, and that is is not throughout the whole movie. Uh,
1: yeah, and it's a really piss-poor sequel. Just a lot more racial jokes, and, uh, Peter Fonda doing a horrible Italian accent.
0: Yeah, but it came out in 2009, so it's even worse (laughs) that they're doing it then. It's really bad, yeah. All this stuff really shoots like Troy Duffy is a person who, on paper, based on that documentary, like seeing him, it's like, okay, I can believe how a force of personality like that could get into the room and talk with a Harvey Weinstein. Um, but at the same time, I can't believe that after you hang out with that dude for more than a pitch meeting, how you would at all be like, oh, yeah, I'll keep financing this guy for several months until we can get, like, the movie off the ground, especially with all the stuff that he's doing with, like, his fucking bandmates who are trying to record an album and all this other shit around him. It, it's a fascinating story of a fucking piece-of-shit idiot who at least has the initial fascination of just like, well, you are very straightforward with what you're trying to put out here, and you have a confidence that I can respect. It just turns out that dude is was a total, like, emperor-has-no-clothes situation, and the clothes are the boondock saints, which is more like he has a strip of like a t-shirt because that's, it's that's how thin the fucking movie is. It is God awful. It is top tier. One of the best examples of like, not every cult hit that you find on like DVD after it had a failed, like theatrical release. Now, all those are good kids. They might be popular, but they can be just as dumb and vapid as a movie that made a hundred million dollars. It sucks. <laughs> and this is a prime example of that. And those are my final thoughts, uh, except just to add the De photo but adam do you have any final thoughts
1: uh, very quickly i will also say Defoto, but also not only is it a prime example of what you just said but it's also a prime example of uh just because you loved something when you first saw it doesn't mean it's good anymore and this is a perfect example of that for me uh like i said i absolutely adored this film if you asked me when it first came out i'd been like five out of five greatest movie. It's so fucking cool. Like, how can you not like this movie now? It barely gets a one. If that it's, uh, it's just an angry, toxic piece of celluloid that if it wasn't for Willem Dafoe would not even be worth your time. And the thing is just go on YouTube and look up Willem Dafoe boondock saints scenes. Don't even bother watching the movie. It's, it's just horrible. And it's some guy's personal moral rhetoric, put out on a screen that is uh for nobody but himself it's a it's a jack-off session of a film for one guy who really doesn't have that much talent
0: well you know adam it's, it's a good point because you know we we put away childish things and in this case a movie that thinks it's a manly thing but is actually an extremely childish thing <laughs> i appreciate the growth i can see it very clearly well i mean
1: and plus you know the fact of the matter is i personally bankrolled part three and it hasn't happened yet so that's probably why i'm really better
0: i think that's maybe why uh flannery and Redis decided to jump off the project they heard you were a producer just like oh okay we're not doing it <laughs> i am so broke but that's enough about Boondock Saint time we have some other things to talk about in our next segment though first here is a message from the eso crew that we fully endorse welcome to dr geeks laboratory
1: Dr. Geek here with another reminder that the ESO Network is pro-science
0: and pro-vaccine. We urge you to be a superhero and protect yourself, your family, and your fellow geeks around the world. Don't be fooled by the forces of evil and their anti-science misinformation campaign.
1: Consult the latest CDC guidelines, your doctor, and get the COVID vaccine today.
0: So now we're going to be doing the double-rid-you where basically every week Adam and I uh, program the best and worst possible double feature based around the topic that we're doing for the week as a compliment to the episode. Uh, we recommend you submit yours uh, at various places. We'll mention as we close the show out. Uh, but yeah, I have two good and two bad movies related to Willem Dafoe he, in all four of my movies that I would, two I would recommend, two I wouldn't. And Adam has the same. Uh, I'll be going first, though, uh, with my yeah. choices for Mr defoe um first my good picks i have um two movies one is from the late 80s and one is from 1990 um that i think really exemplify everything i love about that dude i have first martin scorsese's the last temptation of christ which was very controversial when it came out it is literally depicting the jesus story from a more human perspective in a way that i find fascinating i feel like it's his most underrated of his masterpieces which obviously there's a lot to contend with, and Defoe plays Jesus in it, and I think um, it's a phenomenal portrayal of, I'm not necessarily the biggest religious guy, this was very controversial when it came out, like I said, amongst Christian audiences, especially before they even saw it, but watching that movie, I've never felt more fascinated by Jesus as an actual person or character, in a way that I don't think religion, quite frankly, the limited amount of experience I had with it, has managed to convey to me, Um, where you see so much of, like, Jesus as, like, an actual person and his actual, like, kind of moments of temptation, as the title proceeds to say. Um, And it's such a great cast. Barbara Hershey's really great in this movie. David Bowie shows up as Pontius Pilate and is phenomenal. Harvey Keitel isn't great as uh, (laughs) Judas. Not my favorite performance, necessarily, of his. uh, But it's still such a phenomenal group of people in this movie, that it's it's very different from Scorsese's other movies, and it's like I said, so brilliant. It has even a great moment where um, Defoe as Jesus is just talking about, "I used to believe in love, now I believe in this," and he pulls up his f- fucking axe and it's just like, "Fuck yeah, this is so interesting." But at the same time, there's a lot more nuance that comes from after that point. But I think it's it's a phenomenal movie. And then my other movie is another one from a great auteur. They have David Lynch's Wild at Heart, which I think is a great weird kind of spin on the outlaw 50s movie in which it's mainly following Nicolas Cage and Laura Dern as these two like crazy kids, one's a biker, the other one's this young lady who wants to get out of here. And so they go out on the road and along the way, they encounter a lot of weird characters in a David Lynch fashion, including Defoe as a terrifying criminal who has like this weird, interesting, like, jaw that i can't even describe the look of his teeth when he like grins is terrifying stuff in a very lynchian kind of way it's just stellar i i love that whole movie but i think his performance in particular is so intriguing and terrifying there's so much menace but also a lot of charm where you can see why somebody would be fascinated by him and all that but then my two bad ones i have are uh two movies from 2017 and two examples of him definitely getting a paycheck uh one is the Netflix uh, American live-action adaptation of Death Note, which is a manga and an anime, amongst other things. And Defoe doesn't appear physically in this movie, but he voices the sort of a villainous, ghost-like character. I apologize, anime fans, I forgot his name, of this like ghostly character who basically uh, tempts a young boy to write in this Death Note, which is a journal, of, like, hey, whoever you want to die, just write his name in here, and they'll end up dead within a couple days. And Defoe's voice is very appropriate for that kind of character. Um, And you you might have seen, like, the look of this character on the internet. I'd seen him in various forms. And I think it fits that design. But at the same time, the movie around, like, that character is so dumb. Despite, like, not a huge anime person, but I find that idea fascinating. And there's a lot of potential there. There's also, I think, a pretty good performance from Lakeith Stanfield as, like, the main detective guy investigating that I kind of enjoyed, but the main character is so dull, and his girlfriend's even worse. It is such, like, a very bad American translation of an interesting idea from a different culture. Uh, shocking, I know. And then the other bad ones, um, I have The Great Wall, which was directed by a Chinese director, um, the guy who directed Hero as well. I apologize for forgetting his name. But um, this one was a Chinese co-production that um, was made in China in a lot of ways, but financed a lot by Americans and includes some American actors like Willem Dafoe who I think is trying as much as he can but he can't really compete with maybe the most bored I've ever seen Matt Damon be like so stone-faced and out of it and just like such a black hole of charisma for some interesting like visual stuff is in here but at the same time like they're trying to defend the Great Wall from like a giant gang of like lizard people or whatever there's like lizard creatures that are like really like so samey in the designs and the action sequences get really repetitive. It's a very weird example of like especially at a time when the US to China like box office relationship was so kind of like strained and so like trying to like combine with each other at this particular point. This feels like the most crass example of like two cultures kind of trying to cash in on each other and the result's kind of like negate whatever is interesting about either chinese or american cinema it is a dull affair
1: yeah, i've seen uh, all four of your films um last temptation of christ I, I, I definitely agree it's the first time and if maybe even the last time that sort of jesus as an entity was portrayed as an actual sort of person with flaws uh on screen and obviously not in many places in literature, uh, but it is a great performance from Defoe. It, it's a fucking movie. Powerhouse of a film, and yes, I definitely agree. Keitel, like, oh, good God. But um, yeah, that, that's, a, that's a solid movie. Yeah, him and Wild at Heart, he's terrifying in Wild at Heart. Like, for them to put, like, sort of gum and, and dentures on him even to make his smile even more sort of unnerving was a masterful decision. And it's an image that I have never forgotten. Uh, It's absolutely terrifying. The great wall is beautiful to look at. It's uh, it it looks really great as far as the colors and even sort of the set design and the costume design. And it's uh, directed by, um, I know his, his last name is Yang. First name is like Yimu or something like that. It's uh you know that's sort of his bread and butter like if you watch hero hero is just gorgeous to look at because of the color schemes and everything like that but uh yeah the great wall is a big swing and a miss
0: oh uh, yeah by the way you were corrected yimuzang is the name of that director
1: hey, hey. and uh yeah him is the voice of uh you know in english it'd be ryuk mm-hmm. but like japanese it's like ryoku yeah, he, I thought he was fine as the voice, and I thought the I think I love the character design, but that movie is just horrible. What a shit film! To the point to where when it came out, I got a little bit worried for Adam Wingard because I'm like, Uh-oh, uh oh, he did this and The Blair Witch, and yet he's still gonna do Godzilla and Kong. Oh fuck! And I'm glad to see that I was proven wrong. That Godzilla and Kong is way more competent than either of those. But, yeah, I I can't agree more with your choices. I think those are very solid choices. And then for my uh, Willem Dafoe sort of redo, uh, for the good, I have probably my favorite comedic Willem Dafoe performance ever is uh, him as uh, Klaus in Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. A, it's one of my favorite movies from Anderson, and I just think it's, it's so fun. What a great cast. I love the look of it. I love the idea of the David Bowie song sung in Portuguese. Like, it's just, it's so fun. But yeah, Willem Dafoe as Klaus kills me in that movie. Not if I see you first, Sonny Jim. Like, you know, just, he's so stupid. Klaus, you ever slap me again, I'll beat the shit out of you. Like, it's just so good. And he's so funny in it. And you get the idea that he he thinks he means so much more to Steve than he actually does. Like, it's just a really solid performance of his. And then for my other one, I have a kind of a one-man show. Like, there are other actors in it, but it's basically him. It's The Hunter, which came out a couple years ago, and he's just phenomenal in it. It's basically Willem Dafoe in a rainy jungle, the whole movie, and he just crushes it. He's so good in it, and that's one that also a lot of people haven't seen, but I highly recommend if you get the chance. It's a tour de force performance from him. Whether you like the movie or not, you gotta at least appreciate his performance in it it's wonderful and then for my bad i have the sequel to triple x triple x2 state of the union which again defoe's not terrible in it but it's kind of like a boondock saint situation not necessarily as far as offensive but everything else in the movie is just kind of shit but he's probably the only good thing in it which is doesn't elevate it from being a bad movie. It's still a very, very bland action movie that really doesn't have anything going for it of note. It's just, it feels like a soulless cash grab of a, of a film of a sequel to an already kind of mediocre film. Um, And then my other one, I have the one he did with Madonna body of evidence, very, very poor attempt at a sort of a sexual thriller, A, because Madonna's terrible, and Willem Dafoe the whole time looks like he doesn't necessarily want to be there, and from what I understand, they didn't get along, and it is all over the screen. There is zero, zero chemistry.
0: Uh, Yeah, I've only seen one of those. I've seen Life Aquatic, um, which I, I agree I really like. I think that's one of the more controversial Landerson's. I think that gets the most device reception, especially at the time. It was kind of considered like a, a downgrade um, after he had uh, really popped with like World Ten and Rushmore. But I really dug that movie. I, I still quite dig that movie. I need to rewatch it. I got the Criterion Blu-ray recently. Mm. Mm. <laughs> <Cool>. <laughs> <I'm crying. laughs> um, Correct. But I, I, I really like Defoe's performance, and especially there's that bit where him and Bill Murray are talking to each other. just like, well, I know that you kind of like look up to us of sorts uh, amongst the crew and defoe's like it's like i always consider you one of my dads <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's such a good fucking, but it's also like really earnest and heartfelt i i agree i really i dig that performance a lot i've heard the hunter's really good just haven't seen it um body of evidence i've heard infamously is quite bad especially isn't the whole premise that madonna sort of like fucked her husband to death right yeah yeah <laughs> Jesus. Okay. Um, and then Triple X2 was the actually the only Triple X film I haven't seen. Um, I have seen the first one, which I'm not a fan of. And I've recommended The Return of Xander Cage on here because I think that movie's really fucking fun. <laughs> Not necessarily great, but I think it's a lot of fucking fun. And I just, watching both those movies, even with Triple X, the first one, I just figured, like, no offense to Ice Cube, who I've enjoyed in movies, but it's like, I, I don't know if this premise can be supported by an Ice Cube. <laughs> and from what I've heard, that's very much the case. Yes, that's
1: incredibly accurate.
0: I will say he is trying. Yeah. But it's very unbelievable. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that doesn't quite work. Uh, but yeah, just uh, once again, to repeat our choices uh mine were the last temptation of christ and wild at heart were my good ones and my bad ones were death note and the great Wall*.
1: and my good were the hunter and life aquatic with steve zisu and my bad were triple x2 state of the union and body of evidence
0: Yes, and that is the end of our Double Redo, but we still have some things to do before we do our picking at the end of the episode, so stay tuned for that. Uh, we want to thank some people before we get to the picking for our show, though. That includes Chris Oliver, who does the intro and outro music used in our show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Uh, we also want to thank uh, Christian Thor Lally for the art for our show. Follow him at Night of Water. That's Night with a K. Uh, underscore of, underscore water on Twitter and Instagram, amongst other places for all his great stuff. And, uh, thank you also to our patrons, patreon.com slash dedbpod pod, where for just $1 a month, you all get to pick, uh, movies that we cover on the show and topics and listen to bonus podcasts. Uh, like you all picked the boondock saints for us. So we appreciate that. And you all get the chance this week we're releasing this to vote for another movie to cover on the show because, uh, October's coming up, guys. Oh, boy. We love doing horror stuff in October. And uh, the franchise we're going to cover in October is going to be Child's Play, because there's that new Chucky show coming out we're both very excited about. And you all get to pick between my two good choices for that. So amongst the Child's Play franchise, my good choices are both Child's Play 2, which I think is the superior of the theatrically released sequels. I think does such stellar stuff with Chucky and the good guy doll mythology ends in the big warehouse fight, but also has some fun stuff with, like, uh, Andy Barclay and his foster family. And then on the other side, I have Curse of Chucky, which was the first of the direct-to-video sequels, but I would argue is one of the best examples of a direct-to-video sequel, and uh, introduces Fiona Dorif. Um, as her character that recurs later on after that point is so stellar i think a very uh, underrated movie that might be my favorite of the franchise who knows but both of those i'd be happy to discuss on the show so please uh, vote edgelord patrons for just that one dollar you can vote adam you excited about those two
1: yeah i I definitely agree with you as far as um curse i think that is a phenomenal phenomenal movie and yes also child's play 2 i would agree is the best of the theatrical releases
0: yeah, so um, the, we'll look forward to whichever one of those you pick, Edgelords. Uh, but for more of our antics here, um, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook at DEDBpod. Uh, also, you can submit feedback to us, double bill at gmail.com all spelled out, and uh, if you know you can't support us on the Patreon monthly, it would really help out if you buy merchandise uh, from the ESOT Public Store, there's a link in the description, or if you buy a t-shirt or a mug or just something with our lovely logo on it, um, that helps out because we get a bit of a kickback from that, it really helps if they do what, Adam?
1: Buy our merch buy our merch whoa yeah we love you adam i love you too why don't you buy some merch and get us some of that money uh, your numbers do buddy
0: <laughs> uh, and see perfect we're great actors um and for more of our silly antics you can uh, find me On Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd as at NotTheWho'sTommy. I also do some writing both at MarianiThomas.wordpress.com and film-cred.com.
1: And you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at Atom or Adam. That's A-T-O-M underscore or underscore A-D-A-M. And I'm also on Letterboxd at Schwanson. That's S-C-H-W-A-N-D-T-S-O-N.
0: Yes. And if you want to hear more of us, uh, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or other podcasting platforms. If you're listening on ESO, why not dig into all the other great shows that are on the network? And also you can find our archives on our Podbean main feed, including a bunch of episodes we did well before we joined ESO. And if nothing else, if you can't you know, contribute money on the Patreon, just the $1 a month, or you can't uh, buy merchandise on the tea Public store, we understand. But at the same time, the completely free way to help us out is to rate, review, or share the show around because that gives us more visibility.
1: Yeah, and it's really easy to do. You just got to hit a button. So, if I can do it.
0: <sighs> well, now, Adam, it's time we did our picking for next week's show. And uh, at the end of every episode, as we kind of said at the beginning, um, Adam and I each uh, pick two movies, one of us has two good movies, one of us has two bad movies, and we assign a number between 1 and 10 for both of our choices, and the other person who doesn't have uh, those particular choices uh, picks a number between 1 and 10, and that gets us the good feature, and reverse choices, and that gets us the bad feature for a number between 1 and 10 as well, and uh, that's always the case, though keep in mind what is also the case is the Godfather rule, where Adam and I each have a single veto in our pocket that uh, we can hear either a good or a bad choice. And if we don't necessarily like it, we get asked the question, do you want to take the cannoli? And then at that point, the other person says either no, or actually, I will take the cannoli, thus using up that veto, which we both only have one, we have to use by May, which is the next time of our anniversary. And uh, next time, Adam, in honor of you know what September's coming up, and that's usually when TV shows start coming back on the air, though. Obviously, that depends. Streaming services, all this other stuff, it's weird. But that's traditionally the time, September, when ch- TV shows kind of come back from their summer breaks. And so, in honor of that, we're going to do something we've had in the back pocket to do for a while. Uh, we're going to do films based on TV shows, which is a much richer sort of a sub-genre of sorts than people, I think, give it credit for. Even ourselves oh 100 percent. every time that we've talked about it you know off mic i'm like
1: yeah but how many good are there and you'll lay
0: down like fucking
1: 30 of them i'm like oh okay <laughs> yeah 100 percent.
0: yes and uh i have the two good in that case for the films based on tv shows you have the two bad so um uh-huh. please for my two good choices pick a number between one and
1: ten i will go with number four
0: okay i have um at number three one that um, I actually had only seen very recently and uh, was very acclaimed, nominated, and even won an Oscar, the very acclaimed Harrison Ford vehicle, The Fugitive. Ooh,
1: I do not want to take the cannoli. I'm telling you right now, that is a great movie.
0: Yeah, based on the old uh, 50s and 60s show, which um, we got a lot of interesting things to discuss on that. Though, I think, to be fair, at number uh, seven, I have uh, another one that I think is really solid as well, especially sort of like a parody take on this very silly show from the 80s. I have uh, the Lord and Miller-directed 21 Jump Street. Really solid movie. Way better than expected. Yeah, that's that movie's super funny. Yeah, but now, Adam, I'm very curious where this is going to go. So I'm going to go ahead and go more on the opposite side of the spectrum. I'm going to go with number six. All right. At number seven,
1: I have... A movie that just, to me, signified not only the end of maybe Liam Neeson's big starring action movie, uh, but also Charlotte Copley and kind of stopped Rampage Jackson, Dennis tracks And it's also like maybe the end of the funny Bradley Cooper other than Rocket Raccoon.
0: I have the A-Team. Okay. Uh, hmm. I haven't seen this one. But, mm-hmm. hmm. Do I feel like taking the canola you know what i'm not gonna take the cannoli especially because this one has some defenders so i'm curious if i'm gonna be in that crowd especially it's joe carnahan directed that so uh, i'm very curious especially also i have no experience with the tv show like at all so i'm going in with a clean slate of just like aside from the theme song and that mr t was on it (laughs) that's all i really know (laughs) that's fair and then at number one i had uh Man, one of the
1: worst animated films I've seen in a long time. I have the recently released, and I know the sequel's coming out. I have the animated Adams Family.
0: Okay, I have not seen that. I kind of avoid that like the plague, um, especially because big fan of the two that came out in the '90s. Yes, me
1: too, as well. And this is atrocious. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty bad from what I've heard,
0: but. I think we're going to be talking about a very interesting double feature then with the Fugitive and the A-Team. Yeah. Yes. Uh, So we'll talk all about that next time. But until then, everybody, uh, make sure you pray to your saints. Not those boondock ones, though, because fuck those guys. Fuck all of them.
1: (laughs) Yeah, they could all go straight to hell.